So please, please, if you, if at some point in the talk you can't hear clearly, uh, please let me know. Okay, I'd, I'd much rather that than you uh, feel frustrated or miss something or, or kind of suffer in silence. Tonight, I want to, I would like to explore this teaching of the Buddhas of anatta, uh, the emptiness of self or no self, not self. People translate it in different ways. <clears throat> and actually, it's a huge uh, area. It's very uh, rich and profound teaching. There's, there's actually quite a lot to it, its ramifications, its implications. And so I just want to take one approach uh, out of a number of, of possible ones that the Buddha kind of offers and the teachings offer. One approach and one kind of slice at it. And even then there's quite a lot to say, so I hope uh, it's not too much or overwhelming or confusing. We hear a lot as practitioners about this teaching of anatta, about this teaching of the emptiness of self. And I think it's, it's really important to actually take a step backwards uh, before we even get into it and kind of set a foundation, preface it in, in, in a way. And that is, that it's very easy when we hear about this teaching to make it the kind of be-all and end-all of the whole practice the be-all and end-all of the whole dharma. It's like that everything should go there, everything should be about that, everything should be seen in those terms. And to take a step back and actually see that's not that wasn't the Buddha's approach, and out of his great compassion, really, practical compassion and skill, what's always fundamental, the, always the fundamental question in the dharma is not self or not self or this or that, it's actually suffering or not suffering, suffering or less suffering. And that uh, is, is a much more fundamental and important question of which the question about self and not self, or is there a self, blah, 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 is a kind of one part of that bigger question. So the Buddha didn't really make a statement this that historical Buddha, the Pali Canon, didn't really make a statement, there is a self or there isn't a self. He didn't uh, make that statement, and we're not uh, supposed to do that either. He also didn't uh, say that we should get rid of the self, that the self is something to kind of obliterate or explode or melt into some cosmic something or other. What he more points to is learning to not identify with different elements of experience and rather to see them as not-self. And that's his usual approach. It's very pragmatic and very, very practical. But even then, it's not that we always do that. Okay? It's not that we always do that. The more fundamental question is, in this situation, in this, this suffering that's arising, what is it 
out of all my possible responses and ways of looking that would lead to less suffering for myself and for others? And what leads to more? Now, it might be that looking at it in terms of not-self and disidentifying actually decreases the suffering. But it might be that what's needed in that situation is actual uh, is actually to step into the, the sense of self and to look at it in terms of self. That's what I mean by saying the fundamental question is about suffering, it's not about self. And I think if we explore this as human beings and as practitioners, what we find is that the avenue, the way of looking of not-self and the way of looking of self, the avenue of self, we could say, the view of self, they're both valuable at different times. And in a way, you could say they bring different kinds of freedom, different kinds of freedom available from one and from the other, different kinds of opening, different kinds of healing. And I would say, actually, they're both important for us as human beings. And they're both available to us as human beings. And the question is, do we have, do we have in our practice both available? So it's quite common for a person to live a certain amount of years or decades and feel like it's actually necessary to go back into the past and look at one's story in terms of the self and actually recover and discover uh, elements of that story and kind of uh, knit a, a healing through that. You know, I have a good, I mean, this is totally common, but just picking one example at, at random, I have a very good friend. When she was young, her father uh, was very, very, and critical is, a, is an understatement, uh, you are this and you are that, and extremely demeaning, and a sort of constant uh, barrage of put-downs and criticisms and defining negatively. And of course, you know, a, a child's sense of self, when, it's, when a child is very young, he or she is very young, is, is very fragile, very uh, vulnerable, tender, open, and malleable. And of course, it's, uh, in, in, in its emerging, in that rawness and openness emerging, it's going to be shaped uh, in, in, by, by the influences coming in and especially, of course, of, of the parents and the environment and the society. And I remember in, in you know, my practice, in, in, in the years of practice years ago, being in therapy and finding psychotherapy and finding some of the approaches extremely useful, extremely useful, picking up the language of self. And at that, this is years ago in the 80s and 90s, and I'm not sure if this mode of therapy is outdated or not. I'm not really current with this, but uh, using the language of the inner child, which I'm sure some of you will be familiar with, and finding actually that it was a really helpful way of dislodging certain self-concepts that had got locked into place and that were very unhelpful, very negative, and very uh, painful, and actually dislodging them and replacing them in a way with different self-concepts, yes, but ones that enabled me to really cherish myself in, in a very beautiful way, really see one's own beauty, nothing to do with ego. And so using the view, the language, the avenue of self, but a, a lot of healing available in that. And we see, you know, uh, to set boundaries in life where, where something's not appropriate, that's, that's in a way, that can be a movement of self. 
or to express oneself, we say nowadays, it's a modern thing. But this is all the language of self to, to an extent. As practitioners, we might want to ask ourselves, what's my leaning? What's my tendency? Is it my tendency as a practitioner to want to kind of skip over the self stuff? Just kind of put that aside, get over it, uh, it deny it in a way, not really work through it, or, and, and veer more towards, uh, want to be more in the emptiness all the time. Or is it the opposite? That I'm actually only kind of in, in the self, in the language of the self, in the construction of the self, in the view of the self, and I don't really want to go near this emptiness thing. What's my tendency? It's a re- really important question for us to look, look at our practice and our lives, be honest with ourselves, a lot of integrity. Just see where am I leaning and why am I leaning in, in one way or another? To me, a, a mature practice, if we can use that word, mature, I don't, it's not a great word, but we can use that. A mature practice actually in, envelops both ends of that spectrum. And a, a, totally possible for a hum, human being to reach the place in their practice where they can drop into the mode of self and are happy that way, happy processing things and dialoguing in that way and looking in, in that way and come out of it and drop into the mode of not-self, of disidentification. And there's actually a complete freedom there. And it's just a matter of a sense of what's appropriate now. One moves, can move freely between both. That's quite a tall order, but definitely possible. Sometimes, of course, we make too much of a dichotomy here because anyway, seeing things in terms of not-self and disidentifying, it's not that that produces a kind of grey, nondescript, uh, non-personality. It actually frees our self-expression. And we, when the less the stranglehold of self, the less the identification, the more possibility of, of self-expression. So they're not really at all pulling in opposite directions. Now, in, in one of the talks, I can't remember, I, we talked a little bit about the story and investigating the story. Um, so I just touch on it briefly. And I think I might have said this in one of the talks. But one of the gifts of meditation is that sometimes, just through attention to the present moment, the story, our storyline of who we are and what we did and where we come from and what we've been through, goes quiet. It just, it just uh, is drained of energy and just goes quiet. And then in the absence of that kind of narrative, in the absence of those kind of definitions, who am I then? So much of our sense of self is wrapped up at one level in the story. And it's a real gift to just let that go, let it unbind, drop deeper than that. So who am I? when uh, the story is quiet. Mm, I probably also said this, but I'll say it again just briefly. If we, on, again, honestly, and bring a real integrity to this, to looking at our story and what we tell ourselves and others as our story, what narrative we tell ourselves and others, we'll actually see that it's different at different times. If you pay attention, especially over decades, if you pay attention, it's quite different over different times and even different in different moods. Which is the real story? 
What's the real story of my story? The real me. So one possibility, and it's, I think it's very important in beginning this kind of investigation in anatta, is actually to look, to kind of take a good look at the different ways uh, that we define ourselves or make conclusions about, about ourselves, or the different concepts of, uh, of ourselves that we have. So a little while ago, actually it was, I don't know, a year or two ago even, I was working with uh, someone in England with, about this. And uh, he was looking at the ways that he defined himself. And so he took, he took it away and he came back. And he noticed um, that he was quite a, well, he viewed himself as quite a sort of sharp dresser. Like he was quite, uh, you know, he, he dressed well in, in his uh, eyes. And he said, I, I'm the kind of guy who uh, I dress, my way of dressing is urban sophisticated. <laughs> and this this took this conversation took place in a retreat center, so you, <laughs> which are never great sort of fashion. Um, <laughs> and of course, I was sitting there like. <laughs> um, but what what why this thing was interesting for him was there was a little bit of judgment of others in it. It wasn't extreme. It was quite a light thing to play with at first. But there was a little bit of judgment. I I like this. Everyone else around here seems like a little you know. Schleppy. And so I was looking at this, and he said, okay, urban sophisticated. I define myself as urban sophisticated. And then he, he explored it a bit more, and then he said, he, he was about my age, and he said, he wasn't quite sure if he could say young urban sophisticated. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a question mark. Then he explored a bit more, and so actually, I'm urban sophisticated, maybe young, but I also wear organic cotton. So it was ethical, maybe young, urban sophisticated. But the point was, it's like actually just having a bit of space and lightness in some of these definitions that can actually get very tight without us even, you know, just kind of going by themselves. So lightening up, loosening it up, and, and in a way there's a kind of liberation in that. And, you know, we talked about, well, what would he dress like if it was, you know, 1969? You know, flowers and... <laughs> bell bottoms or whatever. What if it was a hundred years ago and we were sitting in, I don't know, Turkestan or Tibet or, or, or Tanzania, you know, it would be completely different. It's, it's, a, it's a dependent arising based on the culture, you know, what, what is seen to be kind of hip at that time, whatever. Now, of course, when we look at this, how we define ourselves in different ways, uh, oftentimes it's not that light, and a lot of the definitions that we bind ourselves with and constrict ourselves with are actually very painful, very painful. And this too, we want to really uncover what are the ways that I'm defining myself at times. And uh, really have a good look about this. What are the conclusions and the assumptions I'm making about myself? And just be clear what they are. And be clear also, when am I believing in them. What they are and when am I believing in them. And one finds when one does this, it's a whole kind of unexplored bag of assumptions and conclusions and definitions and bindings. Really, really worth identifying, uh, exploring. In, in uh, his case, it was, it was also interesting because some of this, when one 
disidentifies, when one drops that identification, and she sees, oh, it's just an identification, drops it, it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that we stop making those choices or acting in those ways. So, for example, mindfulness. Very easy in this kind of retreat situation to identify with mindfulness. And when mindfulness is there, we feel good about ourselves. We say, I've got a good practice. But actually, mindfulness is not something to be identified with. When I disidentify with mindfulness, it doesn't mean that I stop practicing mindfulness. I just don't identify. Same with something like generosity, etc. So in, in uh, this practitioner's case, doesn't mean that seeing all this and loosening the identification that he then you know, dresses like a, a monk or, or, or whatever. You know? uh, in fact, even if one did dress like a monk or a nun, uh, there can still be identification with that, of course. Uh, one of my teachers was a monk in Thailand and uh, he re- was recounting this incident. Uh, he was outside and a monk was riding a bicycle and got his robe caught in the chain and it ripped the, uh, ripped the robe. And within a few seconds, uh, a sort of s- little swarm of other monks had gathered around him wanting to swap their robes with him so they could wear the torn robe and appear uh, ascetic, very ascetic. <laughs> uh, you know, identification has no pride in terms of what it will what it will latch onto. So one another one of the gifts of being on retreat is that we can really one of the functions of mindfulness, and particularly of the continuity of mindfulness. So when we stress that a lot, it's like just paying attention throughout the day. One of the gifts of that is because of the continuity. It exposes the gaps in these definitions of ourselves. It exposes, like, if I am, I am an angry person, or I am a fearful person, or I am, I'm this, or I'm that, or I'm a great meditator, I'm a lousy meditator, I can't concentrate, this, blah, 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 blah. All that. The, the continuity of the mindfulness, as, as much as possible, we begin to see times when that, whatever it is, that definition is just not true. It's not taking place. And with, with the continuity, this question with the definitions, if I'm defining myself that way, am I always X? Am I always Y? Or are there times when I see that actually I'm not that? That's not present. It's not happening. Really, uh, really powerful to just puncture holes in these definitions. And sometimes a person practices for a while and then just kind of comes to the conclusion, well... I see I've got some good and I've got some bad, and then they look at other people and say, everybody's a mix of good and bad. And, you know, that's, that's good, that's better than being locked into a negative uh, self-definition or a positive one. Um, but it's still not the kind of deep freedom that the Buddha's talking about. Still not that kind of deep freedom. So what else might we, might we how might we explore this? One of the things that I want to emphasize in this talk is how we're building the sense of self, because the sense of self is constructed, and that's what we want to, what's what we really want to understand. It's something kind of uh, built, it's built. And we want to expose that. We see, ah, it's not something real, it's just something I've built. One of the ways we build self is through past and future. 
You've seen this. It's like we project, we remember backwards in the past and we project forward into the future something difficult, something fantastic, whatever, and kind of congeal all that together. And in that continuity, we feel, ah, there's the self. So again, one of the gifts of mindfulness is to come really kind of sharply into the present moment and almost deliberately sometimes kind of snip off the past and snip off the future. Okay, so we assume mindfulness is always about being in the now, being in the present, but sometimes it's almost more deliberately excuse me, getting uh, snipping off the past, snipping off the future. And then in this moment, with the attention to the moment, in the moment, it's like it's a sliver of experience, paper thin, this moment. Who am I in that moment? There's, there's barely anything there. Who am I? The sense of self as a construct needs the kind of elongation in time to make it substantial, to make it feel like, well, it's really something weighty. With the kind of sharp, really alive attention in the moment, really cutting off the past and the future, just for a moment or two, you see, who, who can I be then? There's barely anything there. So these are uh, practices and strategies uh, for freeing up and loosening the sense of self at times. And there, the Buddha is not giving us definitions of the self. He's giving us ways to loosen uh, the view of the self. So there's a sutra, sutta where... Um, where the Buddha talks about the possible ways of conceiving the self that there are. So this is moving just a little bit more subtly now, a little more subtle level. And he says, in regard to the body, a person may regard the body as the self. Regard the body as the self. Or they may regard the self as something that possesses the body. It owns the body. Or they may have a sense that the self is somewhere in the body. Or they may have a slightly more mystical sense of the body being in the self, in the sense of it's in uh, a cosmic consciousness, or it's in awareness, or in God, or in the self with a capital S, or the soul with a capital S. So, regarding the body as self, the self as possessing the body, the self in the body, or the body in the self. Now this is something to really explore. It sounds like an intellectual kind of categorization, etc. But actually it's something that we do uh, inadvertently all the time, either, either deliberately or, or un unconsciously. So oftentimes we regard the body as a self, but actually beginning to question that. If the body was a self and I have a haircut, or I lose my hair when I get older, what happens to myself then? If the self possesses the body, then that would mean that the body is totally in the control of the self. But it's not. I can't say to my, as the Buddha said, I can't say to this body, don't get old. I can't say to the body, don't hurt or, or don't be in pain, don't be diseased. If the self were in the body, uh, which is the third uh, potential possibility, 
where is it in the body? I can look for it in the body. Where is it in the body? We say our brain, but if I, if I was, you know, you opened your eyes and you just saw a brain sitting here giving the talk. <laughs> and, the, and the last one takes a bit more looking, but it's, one realizes it's actually something we can go beyond in meditation. It can't be an ultimate truth. The body being in uh, something called a self. And says that in regard to the body, but then he goes further and says it's the same in regard to feelings, our Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's the same in regarding to perception. All these four possibilities, same in, regarding to, in regard to mental formations, thoughts and moods and mind states. Are they, are they, are they the self? Uh, does the self possess them? Is uh, the self in them? Or are they in the self? And also with consciousness, which is the more su- most subtle one, also with consciousness. So this is really important. Again, it sounds kind of intellectual and a bit picky and, I don't know, complex perhaps. But it's something that we really want to, in a way, go through these categories and really see, hmm, can't be that, can't be that, can't be that. That's one possibility. And the Buddha goes on to say, a practitioner who is skilled in the Dharma, skilled in Dhamma, does not regard the five aggregates in any of these ways, does not regard uh, form, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, or consciousness in that way, in any of those ways, does not regard them in those ways. So this is something to check out. Am I regarding them in any of those ways, either as a philosophical position or in a moment? Because one reaction to this, this kind of teaching would be like, yeah, I mean, that sounds good, but I'm really not the intellectual type. I don't, I don't kind of have that kind of theorizing about the self. What one will find in one's experience is that in some way or another, the self-view is moving between one or other of those categories. Inadvertently, unconsciously, whether one considers it uh, intellectually or not. It's really, really uh, important to see that. The Buddha's talking about, he's pointing us to practicing a view in meditation, which is a different thing than holding an intellectual theory and saying, I, I, I've got the right theory, I'm on the winning side. It's, I'll say it again, the Buddha's pointing us to practicing a view in meditation. It means in this moment, checking out Checking out these possibilities and letting them go and letting them go or seeing, seeing that they can't be right. Okay? Really important. It's not an intellectual thing he's talking about. Another response is to get agitated. Well, if it's none of those, what is the self and how is it and where is it? Where am I? And how is it that karma, that this self that doesn't seem to exist anywhere, can reap the benefits of, of old actions? Now, these are important questions, but oftentimes they're coming out of agitation and a kind of insecurity. And again, what the Buddha would, I I think they're necessary to answer at a certain point in practice. But for most people, the first step is actually practicing the view of letting go of those ways of seeing the self. Okay, does this make sense? Yes? Good. (laughs) Um, 
So the, the Pali Canon Buddha shies away from uh, defining the self in any way. And even it's quite popular nowadays in, in Dharma to define the self as the self is the continuum of moment-to-moment arising and passing of the aggregates. And that's, that's what the self is. And actually the Buddha never said that. I don't know one instance where he said that. He sh- really shies away from definitions. And very pragmatic, very practical, uh, says, is it possible for you to look at experience in the moment, at actually phenomena, not just experience, because it includes consciousness, and actually see it as not me, not mine, in the moment. Learn, practice to see it that way. And as such, he's teaching a kind of strategy. He's teaching an approach that leads to freedom. Okay. And as I've said before, it's practicing ways of seeing, practicing ways of looking that lead to freedom. And this learning to disidentify with not me, not mine, it's just, it's just happening, all this stuff is just happening. That's a way of looking that leads to freedom. It's something that the Buddha encourages us to practice. Now often when I talk about not-self, I actually explore that avenue of practice and, and go into the kind of fill that out more in the details. That's a beautiful, beautiful way of practicing and really an art that can deepen. But I want to take a different tack in, in this talk. Um, and it's pr- it, another approach that the Buddha took is actually present in, in the original teachings. And this has to do with seeing the way that the way that we conceive the self and by conceive, I mean sense the self, or view the self, or feel the self. Again, I don't just mean an intellectual concept. The way we conceive the self, and the way we conceive the world, those two arise together. The way we conceive the self, and the way we conceive the world, arise together. In a slightly different angle now. So, for example, I might have in 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 the woven into my story. I, I am the victim. I am a victim of whatever. And in, in that, a certain view of the world is also woven into that view of the self. They go, they go together. To see myself as a victim means I'm seeing the world in a certain way. To see myself as powerless also means I see the world a certain way. To see myself as having power over, again, it means this self and this world, they have a mutual relationship there, or power in the world. But even more subtly, something like, I am irri- the self is irritated, I am irritated. There is the one who is irritated, and the thing in the world that I am irritated at, arising together, mutually dependent. Very normal, common, almost unnoticed way of uh, being in the world and conceiving the self in the world, we don't often realize that we do this, is the self is a center of getting. It's a center of acquisition. And the world is a field of things to get and things to avoid. And if you think about that for a while, oftentimes that's how we see the self in the world. We don't deliberately say to others that we see it. Well, sometimes we do. But we don't deliberately say to others that. But that's the kind of feeling we have. It's like this thing here, somehow, is a center of getting stuff that I want, 
all different kinds of stuff, and avoiding that which I don't want. And that out there is, is the field of acquiring or avoiding all that. But even more subtle, the self is the experiencer, the world is the experienced. The self is the knower, the world is the known. Self is subject, world is object. All of these ways of conceiving a self, whether they're gross or subtle, they arise together, de mutually dependent. So if, again, if we go back to the story level of the self, um, the story of myself must include a, a kind of sense of how the world is or how others are. And that could be explicit in the story, conscious, or it could just be uh, implicitly woven in there. So this is something we really want to explore. It's another avenue into the whole anatta question. Something very, very points to something extremely profound to explore here, this mutual arising of self and the world. And then it also begs the question, if there are all these different ways of conceiving the self and the world together, which ways of conceiving them, conceiving the self's relationship to the world, which ways are helpful? Remember, going back to what I said right at the beginning, that's the fundamental question in the Dharma. That's the fundamental question. Which ways of conceiving the self and the world lead to suffering? And which ways lead to freedom? So I could, we could see the self as um, giving to the world. We could see, you know, beautiful, we could see the self as healing the world. It's, it, uh, we, we're healing. Uh, we can serve the world. We can, again, take uh, pleasure from the world. We could see it, uh, I am connected to the world, or I am a participant in the world, or again, I am a victim, whatever. All these are views, and they arise mutually. The view of the self and the view of the world, they, they arise mutually like that. And the question is, out of all the available ones, which ones are helpful? Which ones do we want to encourage? Which ones lead us to more beauty, to more openness of heart, to more freedom? Because we actually can have a choice in this. That's the fundamental Dharma question. And then another level of question is, which are true? Which are true? If there's all these different possibilities, what's the true uh, reality of self in the world? I feel that it's you know, a very beautiful question for a human being to ask, a really deep question, a lovely question. What can I give to the world? What can I give to the world? Something I, just so precious in that question, to really deeply ask oneself, what can I give to the world? And it might be, and it often is the case, that, that asking that question and acting on that question takes a level of cherishing the self. It takes a level of uh, needing to really love oneself deeply, and I don't mean that as a platitude, uh, before we can give deeply. Taking a step back again, it's not that in the Dharma, in our practice, we're trying to get rid of all concepts. 
That's actually not what we're trying to do, just kind of jettison or demolish all concepts. So with concepts, again, picking out what I've just said about self and the world, some concepts lead to entanglement, to dukkha, to dis-ease, to suffering, to complication. And some concepts lead to compassion, lead to peace, lead to joy, lead to freedom. And this is really, really important. So for example, <clears throat> sitting here and you have a pain in your back or your hip or your knee, uh, or a, a sadness or whatever, only I have this kind of suffering, only me. That view, that concept will lead to uh, a tightening and, and, a, and an increase of the suffering. Versus, and I think I said this in the, in the reflection the other morning, seeing the commonality, the commonality of, of suffering. Others share this too. That concept, that view, actually leads to a, an opening, a lessening of the weight of the suffering. You know, things like the Four Noble Truths or, uh, or this idea of seeing things as not me, not mine, they are concepts. They're definitely concepts that the Buddha introduced, but they're concepts that lead to freedom, to unbinding. It's really important. If we say in our practice too early, concepts are the problem, I just get rid of concepts, what tends to happen, and I see this over and over again with people, is all that happens is one thinks one's got rid of concepts, and one just goes back to the kind of default strata of concepts in one's life. And one may not use the language of self because one's a little bit carefully avoiding it. But still the notion of the now or a present moment or a world or awareness, all that, concepts. And one hasn't actually um, seen through and kind of untangled these more subtle default concepts if I jettison the idea of concepts too early. So again, when I say concept, I don't just mean intellectual theories. I mean views and ways of seeing, ways of relating that are actually going on all the time. Right now, everyone, every one of us in this room, uh, the mind has concepts going on. Not, not just because I'm talking, but even I was silent, we went into meditation. Concepts, concepts, concepts. Ways of seeing. So bare attention is a concept. Bare attention is interesting because it's a concept that it, it has the tag to it, I'm not a concept. <laughs> Actually, it's a concept. And I've said this before in here, but it's really important, I'm going to say it again. When we feel like we're just looking and just being with things, actually there's a whole bunch of concepts that are fabricating that experience and holding it in place. And we need to discover uh, how that's operating, what it is, and to free that up. So any, at another level, I said, what's a useful way of seeing self in the world? What's a useful way of conceiving that? At another level, any sense that the self and the world are two things that are really real, or something that is really real, that brings with it uh, some sense of disease, some sense of dukkha, some sense of threat. And I have a self and I have a world, I have an other. And this, uh, this self is at the mercy of the other. So any sense. If we just pay attention to the sense of self in our life and our practice, it seems completely obvious and completely intuitively true 
that um, the self, we have this sense of a self moving in or through the world in time. Okay? We have a sense, it's just totally, everyone, almost everyone would agree with this, a self moves in or through the world in time. It seems so obvious. I get up, I walk over there, I go to the bathroom, I, I whatever. I'm moving in or through the world in time. Is that true? Is it really true that the self moves in and through the world in time? And is that view, that conceiving, does it have some dukkha with it? Or when we're meditating, and just watching and just watching and just being with, we can have the sense of the witness sitting almost like watching the river of experience flow by and things and phenomena just arising and passing and arising and passing. A witness sitting, watching phenomena go by. Or we might get a sense of the world, the world of experience, phenomena, being in awareness. It's almost like awareness is uh, expansive, huge, embraces all phenomena, holds everything, and remains in itself unperturbed, unfazed, untouched. The world is in awareness. Now both of those, watching the river flow by and the world being in awareness, beautiful uh, openings in practice, openings of consciousness that we want to explore, want to get to know, want to stay with and be with. Really beautiful. lot of freedom possible there. A lot of freedom. want to cultivate them. We want to deliberately cultivate those ways of seeing, those kind of stationings of, of that sense of things. But there's problems with that in, in terms of what's ultimately true. There's, there's problems with both of them. And the first one is that uh, it's very easy to identify with the witness, identify with the watcher or awareness or consciousness or whatever we might call it, and might give it capital letters or whatever. And again, we might do this consciously or we might do it unconsciously. Really, really important because the Buddha said that's actually not the truth of things. You are not awareness. We are not awareness, and we need to learn to uh, unhook that identification. And that's a, a skill and an art and a practice very possible. The second thing, and it's probably even, if possible, more important, is that this witness or this awareness always has with it what can we say, factors, other factors that color and shape and fabricate experience. So we've touched on this. The world, the world of experience is always fabricated or concocted. And those two words, fabricated and concocted, translation of uh, the word sankara, the Buddhist word sankara. But in English, they give a very good sense because it implies something not quite real, fabrication, concoction. There's always something mixed with awareness, some uh, thought or re reaction, subtle reaction or view, including the self-view, no matter how subtle, uh, or intention or delusion, something that's fabricating the way the world 
is experience and fabricating the experience. So rather than a world kind of existing in awareness, one actually sees that there's this building of the world of experience. So one time the Buddha was sitting around with, with a group of monks in this case, and he said to them, monks, if you, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember, I couldn't find the story, but I'm, I'll paraphrase the story. If you had a stride, a step, when you walked, you had a step that was a hundred miles long. You, one step took you a hundred miles. And you walked for a hundred years, or a hundred lifetimes, or a thousand lifetimes. You wouldn't reach the end of the world. And yet, monks, unless you reach the end of the world, unless you see the end of the world, you won't know Nibbana. And then he went inside to his kuti and he shut the door. <laughs> and he left them to chew on that. <laughs> and I think it was left to uh, Ananda or Mahakachana to kind of explain that. What he's getting to is what, what I'm talking about, is that the, the world is fabricated. And we want to understand something. So I'm going to say more about it. When in, 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 in meditation, in practice, the, the, the awareness calms and, and it feels open and, and we're clear, we're present, one actually wants to start paying attention, deliberate attention, and see this process of the building and the fabricating of things of ex- and experience, the fabricating of the world. I actually want to see that, because I want to understand it. And in seeing it, can I learn the skill, the art, of letting go of that building? Okay, I've said this before, it's not enough to just sit on the riverbank and watch phenomena go by, and of course they'll arise, and of course they'll fade. But that understanding won't be enough because it won't take you to the end of the world that the Buddha is talking about. I need to understand how uh, the mind, the heart, is building experience, and, and is it possible in that understanding to actually let go of it and not build? So again, these words, the translation of Sankara, concoct, fabricate, in English they imply a falsity. They imply, like we call a lie, a fabrication, a concoction, some fancy story. And the Buddha picks these words. Interesting. So, one thing I really want to stress is that that might sound completely abstract. I'm like, well, gosh, I'm a million miles away from any of that kind of seeing in my practice. I don't know, you know. But it's a continuum of understanding. And this is such a beautiful thing. It's a continuum of understanding. At one level, at one end of this continuum, let's take when the mind is really writhing in complexity. It's really got a lot of papancha going on. We've gotten all our story, and not just my story, but my parents' story and their parents and going back, and everything's really complicated. And some thing in the world we've really gotten into a twist about. There's a lot of papancha, there's a lot of story building, there's a lot of agitation. In that moment, at that time, the sense of the self is very strong, it's very marked, it's very built up, we could say. We've, we've built the self-sense uh, to be large, okay? Even if it feels like I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, and I want to crawl into a hole, actually that's still a, a kind of built-up sense of self. 
a lot of self at that point built up, but also a lot of thing, because I need to be agitated about something in the world. There's much self and much world, much thing. There arising together, they're being built together when there's a lot of papancha. And then that passes and I'm in a more ordinary state of consciousness and I see, oh, everything's just a bit more, it's not like something is completely prominent in consciousness and being obsessed about and really loud and screaming at me or the sense of self is so loud and exaggerated, it's just more normal. There's the self and there's things and it's okay. So as I let go of the story and the building and the papanchizing, Self gets less, thing gets less. If I learn, as I said before, this avenue of practice to disidentify and let go of identification with experience, what I notice too, again, is the sense of self gets less, even less than ordinary, and the sense of thing correspondingly gets less. This may take a little time to notice. Oftentimes, people don't hang out enough in this practice of anatta to see that the sense of thing actually decreases. Okay? It takes a little getting used to one. Oftentimes people just dip in and out of it. And that's one of the reasons I said in the other talks, of really staying with the practice and taking it as an avenue that takes you deeper. Because if, if we don't, we probably won't unfold these deeper insights. And if it's possible, if I can develop this, and I'm talking about, you know, long-term practice, but if it's possible to actually let go of all the aggregates, not even identified with consciousness, very subtle hooking of identification, I let go of that, not identified with any of the aggregates, there's no seeing any of the aggregates as, as me or mine, even less self, even less thing, less and less and less and less and less, until Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing arises at all. The insight there, rather than making too much of a thing about that experience, is the continuum. Less self, less world. Less building of the self, less building of the world. It's also something about as practitioners learning or getting used to moving along that continuum of, of the, the self being you know, tight and strong and constricted and, 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 and loud and less and less and less and, and knowing that. You know, it's, a, it's just a fact of the human condition that most humans spend most of their life uh, kind of in an almost continuous state of self-referencing. What do you think of me? What do they think of me? What do I think of me? How am I defining myself? And it's shifting and changing, it's painful, and it's, it's, it's a painful process. And it's all, almost uh, without interruption. And it's constricting, it's a constriction, and it's tiring, it's exhausting. And as part of the human condition is that one becomes so used to that, so used to it, it becomes like uh, water for a fish, one doesn't even realize that it's a constriction, all this selfing. It doesn't even feel it as a constriction. So one part of it is getting used to that uh, spectrum. Now there's another way of going about this, and I think I've touched on this in another talk, is letting go of the push and the pull. So we're, again, 
almost constantly in a tussle with experience. I push away what I don't like, aversion. I pull towards myself what I do like, craving. And a similar process happens. If I learn, if I develop art, the skill of relaxing that push and pull, just moment by every, every moment, just really focused on relaxing that push and pull. That's what I'm interested in if I'm following this avenue. What do I see? As I push and pull less, Dharma language, as I cling less, what happens to the sense of self? Quietens, gets less. What happens to the sense of thing? Again, I need to hang out enough to see this, uh, gets less. Including such a thing as the present moment, the now, or whatever. So what do we see? We see that the self, we say in Dharma language, is empty. It's dependent on the push and pull. And the world is empty too. It's dependent on the push and pull. This is completely, utterly counterintuitive uh, understanding. Because we believe in a world that's just there. Open my eyes, there it is. What are you talking about? We all agree it's there. And that's how it is. But the, you know, the, one of the deep gifts of Dharma practice is actually turning that on its head. And there is this possibility, definitely there's this possibility of just building less, learning to build less and less, to participate in this building process less and less, until it gets to the point that what is revealed is the unbuilt, the un, what the Buddha called the unfabricated, the asankata, the unborn, the uncompounded, the deathless. And that's, that deathless is not something that's a kind of eternal, lasting forever. It's something that's actually beyond time, because time is also built, and it's also beyond awareness. So going back a, a few minutes before, we actually see there's no such thing as pure awareness. I'm putting a lot in this Dharma talk, I hope it's not overwhelming, but... <clears throat> We can sometimes have that sense in practice of a pure awareness. And as, as I said, very beautiful, very helpful. But at a certain point, one needs to go beyond that. There is no, there is no pure awareness. Awareness, too, <coughs> is fabricated, is built in this process, mutually built. And awareness is a very subtle form of subject that knows an object, consciousness and an object. And one sees that that is built as well. Awareness, too, we say, is empty, lacks inherent existence. Extremely important and very, very deep insight. It's not necessary to jump there right away, but uh, very important and very common for people to leave that, that level undone and just end up in a kind of awareness as some ultimate real thing. That's a whole other talk. The thing I want to emphasize really is, is, that, is that it's a spectrum of one insight. If I grasp, if I complicate, I'm building self, I'm building thing, world of things, and, and clinging. So clinging, self, and things get built and they mutually support each other like a tripod. Three sticks leaning on each other, mutually built. And to see that to any degree of subtlety or any, anywhere on this spectrum is, is fantastic. It's wonderful. And it's the same insight, uh, same inquiry that takes one all the way to Nibbana. So looking into you know, the really papancha situation and, and seeing through that and seeing how everything was built, it's the same you know, mode of insight 
all the way to what we call the deathless. Sometimes when hearing or talking about the self, we, we might get the sense that the, the self, how to put it, let's backtrack, it's not just the gross self that we're interested in seeing through, the self of uh, the inner critic or papancha or the problematic ego. Uh, we're actually interested in seeing through and understanding any kind of sense of self at all, no matter how subtle, even the most subtle sense of, as I said, a subject and an object, and uh, an awareness with nothing there and an object. And we want to understand all of that as fabricated. So sometimes in practice, it, one gets a sense of, oh, there was no self then, and then the self came back, as if it's a kind of on-off switch. It's more of a spectrum, and one, one wants to really see that because without that one will miss the more subtle manifestations of self, which we're very interested in exploring. So the Buddha said, when one sees the origination of the world as it actually is with right discernment, non-existence with reference to the world doesn't occur to one. In other words, when one sees how the world is built, the world of experience, the world of things is built, you can't say it doesn't exist. And then he goes on to say, when one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, existence with reference to the world doesn't occur to one. Because one has seen, oh, if I don't build, it kind of disappears. And that whole building, not building, one sees, I can't really say it exists, and I can't really say it doesn't exist. So it's not a nihilism, this teaching of em the emptiness of the world, and the emptiness of the self, is absolutely not a nihilism. It's not saying it doesn't exist at all. It's also not something that's supposed to leave us in a kind of existentially fraught or confused place, an agnostic place. It may be frightening for some practitioners, but actually qu quite a few pra at first, but eventually it's not supposed to leave us in a place of fear at all. It's moving us towards freedom, no question about it. And with this exploration, opposite of, of nihilism, there's a reverence that comes, there's something so beautiful in this in this dependent arising, this mutual emptiness, that the, the heart feels a real reverence, a kind of bowing to this. There's an, a sense of awe and a sense of beauty, not not at all nihilistic, not at all cold, not at all. Once the, the a cosmologist. A, a Brahmin cosmologist went up to the Buddha and he said, does everything exist? And the Buddha said, that's the most popular cosmological theory. <laughs> and the cosmologist said, okay, does nothing exist? And the Buddha said, that's the second most popular cosmological <laughs> And so the Brahmin said, okay, okay, is everything one? Is, every, is it all just a oneness? And the Buddha said, aha, that's the third most popular. <laughs> and finally he said, is it okay, is it a plurality? Is it just a, a, a manifold, you know, multiple? And the Buddha said, that's the fourth. 
And he went on to say, these are all views and extremes of view. They're all views and extremes of views that think everything exists, everything doesn't exist, it's all one or it's all multiple plurality. And he went on to teach this Brahman uh, what we've talked about, dependent co-arising. He said, that's what I teach and that's what we call the middle way, the middle way between the, existent, between the extreme of existence and non-existence. I teach the Dharma which is the middle way, the Dharma which is the middle way. So when we look at this and, and we sort of take in self and the world, and it's like we see that the self doesn't inherently, it's not inherently any way. So when we make these definitions about the self and these views and these constrictions. The self is not inherently any way, and nor is the world. So on a, on a gross level, we say the world is fair or it's unfair. Or we say... Um, it's a benevolent universe, or it's a cruel universe, or it's a cold universe, or it's an indifferent universe. These are, these are all views. Or the self is separate from the universe, or it's one with the universe. Or even saying it's interconnected. That also, to me, that, doesn't, that word doesn't quite go far enough to really penetrate the depths of what's meant by this mutual co-arising doesn't quite uh, go far enough to say the self and the world are interconnected. I mean, it's lovely and it's a, uh, it does open a lot, but it's not quite enough. Or that, again, like the self exists or not exists. But there's something in this thing, this mutual dependent arising, this mutual co-arising, it brings freedom with it, a, a beautiful freedom, absolutely beautiful freedom. And uh, to repeat, I've said it already, but getting away from this idea of a, a kind of certain experience. That, that has its place, but it's more that it's one, one continuum of seeing this dependent arising, this mutuality of dependent arising. The more I see it, the more and more I see it and sense that, the more freedom there is. The more I look into it, the more freedom there is. Right across the whole board. So it's not something, uh, in its depths I know, and I, I'm sure for, for some of you it's all, it all sounds very new and very abstract and very removed from where you are, but it's actually one thread of insight, one thread of insight. And wherever we are in our practice, we can step, we can start to follow that thread. No question about it, wherever we are. And that's available to us. In a way, one just follows that thread along with cultivation and, and but one follows that thread and it, it unfolds and the whole, the whole show, self and the world, begins to unbind and one, one understands that. And in that understanding is, is the beauty of freedom. Okay, so let, let's have a minute or two quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.